Today, we are entering into the middle section, and you can see there in the video as it went to Acts 2, uh, the middle section of the Gospel of Mark. And so we are going to be uh, kind of walking through uh, these passages. And so as we are kind of moving into uh, the middle section, we're also moving into really the core of Mark's Gospel. From this moment, everything that we have seen in Mark's Gospel changes drastically. Uh, Mark changes kind of the, his, the way he's writing. He changes some of his points. And so I, I want you to, to look at this. And if you have your scripture notebook uh, with you, then you can, I'll just kind of walk you through so you kind of see how this is uh, kind of taking place. But there is a section that I really believe Mark is kind of laying out for us that Mark wants us to see. If you look on uh, page 44, which is Mark chapter 8, verse 22, if you don't have the scripture notebook, uh, you can see there at the top heading, there's a heading for the healing of the blind man. There's a, that is the story. We're gonna, I'm going to read that story again for us here in just a moment. We have that heading, and in that heading, you can flip over to page 60, I believe it is, and there is a heading there that I want you to see, which is a blind man healed. And I think Mark is, is wanting us to see something and kind of taking, really kind of bookending this section, this little tiny little section here of these couple chapters, bookending it for us with two healings of two blind men. And he bookends this, and not only does he, does he want to make sure that we see it here, there's also a word that Mark is going to use seven times during this little section. The word in Greek is the word udas, uh, and as we translate that as the road or the way, we see it there. If you look again on verse 40, or page 44, you can see it down there. Uh, let me find it. Uh, they came to Bethsaida, he brought a blind man, begged him to touch him, and then, um, I just forgot where I, where I found it. But anyway, um, I forgot my scripture notebook this morning, so I had it marked in mine, and I can't find it in this one. But in that passage right there, he's there. Then if you flip over as we end chapter 10 on verse 60, it says, Jesus said to him, go, your faith has saved you. Immediately he stood, or he could see and began to follow Jesus on the road. And so we have this, this word, road, that kind of walks through this, and Mark uses it seven times. The reason I bring that up is because it's an incredible kind of transition as we move into Lent between now and Easter. Now we're going to cover this section quite a bit faster than we're going to cover this section over the next three weeks. But as we move towards the cross, one of the things that we use a lot of times in the church to talk about it is we use the idea of the road to the cross or the way to the cross. And so I want you to begin thinking about this. And this week, as we head towards Ash Wednesday, as we head towards Lent, I want you just to kind of know a few things. So this is a little bit of a pause on the sermon, a little bit of a commercial, but it also ties into where we're going with this, that we come together during the season of Lent. You'll see in your bulletin uh, just down here, there's a little paragraph about the season of Lent that you can read tells you a little bit about why we participate in Lent, but I will tell you just kind of some things very briefly about that and why I bring that up. Apparently tonight, there is a big football game going on and our whole world revolves, or a lot of our world revolves around that, that game. And on our calendars, we mark things that are important. We mark important days and there are 
uh, all of those things, they're important parts of our lives. And the role of Lent, the role of preparing ourselves for Easter, is to remind ourselves that the most significant event that took place in our world ever, we celebrate through Advent with Christmas and the coming of Jesus the Messiah, but we prepare ourselves for his death and resurrection as we come into Lent. And we can prepare ourselves for all kinds of things that happen in the world, and there's all kinds of sales that go on, headed up to the Super Bowl. There's all of those things that take place. But Lent is an opportunity for the church and the people of God to stop and to say, this is a time that we're setting apart to prepare ourselves on the way, on the road towards the cross. Now, a lot of people do different things during Lent. Uh, a lot of times you will give something up for Lent. You hear that language. It's an important kind of piece of it. Uh, that you take an opportunity to just say, what's something in my life that I could abstain from or that I could fast from over these 40 days uh, to remind myself of the sacrifice that Christ has, has made for me and that Christ has done for me. And so if that's part of what you want to do, uh, I, I love that aspect of it. Uh, from the time that I was in college and started doing that has been an important part of Lent for me. Other people say, you know what, I'm gonna take this 40 days not to take something away, but to add something, uh, to add that I'm going to make sure that I'm going to read my Bible or I'm going to pray during these 40 days, try to create that habit of adding something to our lives. But whatever you decide, I, want, I hope that you kind of take these moments as an opportunity to say, how do I focus myself between now and Easter, focus myself on what Christ has done for me, the sacrifice Christ has made, and what that means when we come to Easter and we stand and proclaim that the tomb is empty and that Christ is risen. How does that affect my life? How do I order my life by that? And that's what Lent is all about. And so I just kind of tagged that in there because I think Mark does a great job of kind of helping us see in this little section, using this term, the road or the way to kind of help remind us that we are on this path towards the cross. So let's get into the, let's get into the passage. I'll, uh, I'll stop my little commercial and we'll, uh, we'll jump into this. So I kind of added an extra story into this uh, passage today, and it's one that I think is very important and one that I've, I've already mentioned, but this healing of a blind man, because I want you to see it, because I think it really sets up where we're going and where Mark is going with this section. So chapter 8, verse 22 says, They came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village, spitting on his eyes, laying his hands on him, and he asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Now, I don't know if you, I have never been blind. I don't know if you know this, but that's not what, that's not what you want to happen. So Jesus touches him, he opens his eyes, he looks out, and what he sees, he, he knows he's supposed to see something, he knows it's supposed to be clear, but it's just objects that are moving. So in the next verse, it says, again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him home and said, don't even go into the village. 
So these kind of two things that happen, this, the way this miracle lays out. He touches his eyes, and, Jesus, and the man says to him, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then the second part is the man, he touches him again, and it says the man looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Why did it take Jesus two times to heal him? That, that's the question of this story. Now, I had a commentary years ago. I'm not one that if I read something in a book that I disagree with, I just get rid of the book. I don't usually do that. But I read a commentary. This was, we still lived in, in California, and I was preaching on this passage. And I read this, and I thought, eh, I don't think I'm going to keep this book. Because the commentary said the reason it took Jesus two times to do this was because what's called the diminishing power of Jesus. And his power was, dis, 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 was diminish. Yeah, say that word, diminishing. That was not a word that I thought I was going to struggle with. His power was diminishing. Okay? I think that's absolutely 100% completely wrong. I think Jesus, and as I've already told you, at the end of this little section, we're going to see Jesus healing someone on the first try. I think Jesus is teaching us something. So the question becomes, what is Jesus, what is the purpose of him taking two times to do this? What is Jesus trying to make sure that we understand in it happening twice? And I think the answer to that comes in the very next story and kind of what, what begins to transpire in this very next story. So in the very next piece of this, uh, we'll flip over to verse 27. In verse 27, it says, Jesus went out with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter, being spokesman of the disciples, Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. In verse 30, and he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Now, this little story, there's kind of a few things going on here. There's two things that I want to point out to you just very quickly. Number one, I just want to go ahead and apologize because at some point in this sermon, I'm going to get going and I'm going to say Peter's answer uh, incorrectly when it comes to Mark. In Mark's gospel, we just read, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, you are the Messiah. All right. In Matthew's gospel, I've got Matthew's uh, version up here. He says it a little bit different. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Same story. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. For some reason, I don't know why, but this version is the version that is burned into my heart. Okay, so I'm just giving you a precursor. I'm just, I know how I think, this is how I would think. If I was listening to someone preach and they got excited or something and said, you know, and he answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. I'd be like, that's not what he said. And then I would lose the rest of the sermon because I would be like, why is the preacher saying that wrong? So I'm just telling you, I'm probably going to say it wrong when it comes to Mark's gospel because this is the version that's stuck in my head. All right, so there's, that's kind of first piece. 
The second piece is this. When we started the, Mar- the Gospel of Mark, we started with Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it said, In the beginning of the gospel, we talked about the word gospel, euangelion, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's a word here I want to talk about just very, very quickly. This word that we see here, Jesus Christ, the word in Greek is Christos, and we translate that word as Christ. But the word Christos in Greek is the same parallel or the same word in Hebrew as Messiah. So if your Bibles say you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, or you are the Messiah, and your neighbor's Bible says you are the Christ, and you say which one is right, the answer is they are the exact same word. They mean the same thing. It's just two different languages. One is Hebrew, one is Greek. That, that's, where, that's why that happens. So that's important because it kind of brings up a question. One of the things we see in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Mark says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. From this moment, there is not one character of all the characters we've talked about, from the disciples to the people healed, there is not one character in Mark's gospel who calls Jesus the Christ. Not one character until we get to this verse. Until Jesus asks the question, who do people say that I am? And Peter speaks up and says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. Now, why is that important? Because this proclamation that Peter is making is a proclamation that absolutely changes his life, the disciples' life, and your life, and my life. Where we're going in this sermon, which I think most of you probably might guess, where we're going in this sermon is, I believe that everything in life hinges on how you answer the question, who do you say that Jesus is? Was Jesus a rabbi? Was Jesus just a man in history? Was Jesus just like anybody else? Or was Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God? And the way we answer that question changes every single thing about our lives. So what I want to do for the rest of the sermon is talk about how he answers that question and why that question is important to answer correctly. There is a correct answer. Peter gives us the correct answer. So I want to talk about why that's important. I want to talk about that for the rest of this. But what I also want to talk about just kind of very quickly is When Peter says the word Messiah, what does Peter mean? This is where I think we come back to the blind man. Because the understanding of the word Messiah in the New Testament world is a little bit different than our understanding of the word Messiah. You see, in the New Testament world, if we were to ask who is the Messiah, they would tell us the Messiah is a figure who would come and establish a holy kingdom here on earth. That the Messiah was one who was going to come in their time period and was going to be able to overthrow the overseers, the government, the Roman Empire. 
That was the Messiah. But what we begin to see in the text is there is another understanding of what Messiah is, that Messiah is a spiritual Christ, a spiritual Messiah who was coming from the divine realm to establish a new era of God's reign and rule on earth. And a new people who are going to live under that reign and rule. And so I would argue that part of the story that we have here, part of this blind man, is Jesus touching his eyes and saying to him, what do you see? When I say the word Messiah, what do you see? And the man says, well, I see something. But maybe my understanding of what you are is different than your understanding of who you are. That in these verses, I think Jesus is telling us, I want you to clearly see who the Messiah is. Not just a historical Messiah, but who the Messiah is for you. That as God is saying, this is what the Messiah looks like, that we hear those words and it changes who we are. So let's walk through this as Jesus begins to kind of help us understand what the, who the Messiah is. We're going to read verse 31 down through 38. We're going to take a little bit of time because I'm going to stop here just a couple verses in. Those of you that know me know that I do that pretty quickly. So let's go. Verse 31. So Jesus begins to teach them what was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Verse 33, but turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but about human concerns. Now, let's pause here just for a moment and let me try to help us understand what I think is going on here. Because part of the difficulty here is Peter answered his questions we just talked about absolutely 100% correct. Who do you say that I am? You're the Messiah. So if we were in a classroom, we would say, Peter just went to the top of the class. Then Jesus tells them what the Messiah is going to look like, and Peter rebukes him, and where does Peter end up? At the bottom of the class. He called him Satan. So let me, let's just kind of talk about what this means. Logan, can you come help me? Is there another Logan I'm looking at? Oh, okay, all right. And I need one other person. I picked on Logan because Logan knows I love him and he's about to be Satan. So he knows that I'm not going to... Here, come on up here. Okay, I need somebody that's going to be Jesus. Who wants to be Jesus? Hands go up quickly for Jesus. All right, come on up. All right. Is it okay if you're going to be Satan here in a second? All right. All right. I knew that you would be okay with that, that you you know I love you. So, all right. All right. Here's... Okay. Here's Jesus. Let's let's come over here to the middle. Let's get over here. Okay, Satan, you get behind us. All right. Uh See what I did there? All right. Okay. So here, here, is, here is Jesus. We're gonna, Jesus is going to go this way, actually. He is headed, as we've talked about, on the path, right? Where is this path leading? Heather, would you go back, go back to the uh, previous verse? Uh, or maybe, let's go verse 31, sorry. Where is this path leading? He began to teach them what was necessary for the Son of Man to do what? To suffer many things, to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and then what? Be killed... So this path 
that Jesus is on is the path that heads to Jerusalem, but also the path that heads ultimately to death. And we know rise after three days. I thought the video, he does a great job of them talking about like, we don't have any clue what he's talking about, about being raised in three days. But so Jesus is saying, this is the path that I am on, right? Everybody with me? So Peter, his good friend, says, Jesus, you're doing great, Logan. All right. We did not plan this, so he has no idea what, okay. So Peter says, Jesus, I love you, buddy. But this is, do you love him? Yeah, okay. Is it weird for him to say, you want me, you want Logan to tell you he loves you? Would that make it better? No, it's fine. Okay. So Jesus, so Peter says, I love you, buddy, but this is not the path. Come with me, Logan. This is not the path that you want to be on. We're dancing. All right. Nazarenes don't dance. I don't know if y'all know that, but just two, just two of them. Okay. So that was a good joke. Wasn't it? All right. So what does he do? He's turning Jesus away from what we just read to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed. And saying, Jesus, this is not what you want to do. This is not the path that you need to be on. And the reason I'm doing all this is I want you to see this because what Jesus says to him is, Peter, you're confused at what your place is in this story. Because your place is for me to go on this path and you to beware behind me. Y'all hear it? Your, your role in this story is not to block me from the path where God, my Father, has me going in obedience. Your role is to follow me on this path. Everybody with me? Okay, can we, are y'all done? You think you're good? All right, all right, thank you guys. I didn't call you the, thank you, Logan. All right, so I want y'all to see that because there's, there's an important thing going on here that I don't want you to miss that's going on in Scripture. That part of following, part of following God is understanding our place in the story. Part of, let me say it again, part of following God is understanding our place in the story. And Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, and we don't, this is, this is where I'm kind of trying to get in Jesus' head. I don't know what Jesus was thinking, but we understand some of this. We could go back, all the way back to the beginning of the story. Jesus goes into the wilderness. He is tempted by the devil. The devil is in his head and says, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. Every time when Jesus is tempted by Satan, Jesus turns away from that. I don't believe that after that story, the devil just said, you know what, I'm done. Those three times didn't work. I'm just gonna walk away from Jesus and I'm not gonna try to turn him. I think this is something Jesus dealt with all the time. And Jesus here lays out the path that the Father has him on. And Jesus is saying to Peter, but he's saying to you and I, you need to know where your place is. And your place in this story is not to be in front of me. Your place in this story is behind me. Your place in this story is to be the one who follows me. And what it is to be a disciple, as he tells us as we go on, Heather, you can jump back down to where were we? Verse 34, as, as he goes on with this story, he calls the people along with his disciples and says to them, if anyone wants to beware, 
behind me. If anyone wants to follow after me, let me tell you what that life looks like. That life doesn't tell me where, you, where you're going. That life is behind me. Follow after me. Let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Verse 35. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world yet lose his life? For what can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous, sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when it comes in the glory of his Father with holy angels. So what does it mean? What does it mean for you and I to assume our proper place in following the Messiah? What, what does it mean for you and, you and I to follow after God? The temptation that every single one of us deal with, and I'll say it again, I'm going to say it at the end of the sermon again. Peter does this phenomenal job in this story of being the spokesperson for the disciples, but Peter also does a phenomenal job of being the spokesperson for you and I. Because how many times in our lives do we want to get in front of God and say, God, no, 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 no. That's not the way we're going to go. That's not the way we're going to do this. And we have to be reminded our place is not in front of God. Our place is behind him a place where we have to deny sometimes the things we want. We have to deny what we might think we need to follow after a God who is the one leading. This story is a story that helps us understand what it means to be the Messiah, what it means for us to follow after the Messiah. The coming of the Messiah ushers in a time that is fundamentally aligned with God's vision for the way the world should be. Jesus is on that road, knowing where he is supposed to be going. And our place is to be following a God and following the Messiah as he is on that road. So, how do we pull all this together? The question that Jesus asks is not just for his first disciples. It, it, it's for us. The question of the passage is just as important in Mark chapter 8 as it is in 2024. Who do you say that Jesus is? It is the question that absolutely changes our lives. It is the question that helps us understand what life really is. This morning, my hope and my prayer for us is that as we walk this road towards Advent or towards Lent, as we walk this road towards Easter, that this is a question that we understand. This is a question that is a theological question. Who is God? 
Is Jesus Christ the Son of the living God? That's a theological question. It is a theological question. But it's also, it's also a question about my identity. It's also a question about your identity. Because if we proclaim with Peter, Peter, you, or we we proclaim with Peter that Jesus, you are the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. It changes everything about our lives. It changes our ethics. It changes our priorities. It changes everything about us. And it also changes our place. That my place is not in front of God trying to tell him what to do but my place is behind him. Following on this path of where God is leading. So the question, the question today is the same question on that day. Who do you say that I am? It's a question that changes everything about our lives. Today, as we close, uh, those of you that worship with us regularly kind of know how we do things. We're going to sing here in just a moment. And one of the things we do is we designate altars if there are things you want to pray for. If you would like to pray for, uh, for healing, whether it's emotional, spiritual, physical, we believe that we serve a God who heals. And if you would like to pray this morning to be healed, I would love the opportunity to get to pray with you and I'll be right down at this altar. If you would like to pray with a pastor, uh, just to have someone that you can talk to, someone to say, I've never answered that question. Or maybe I've thought I've answered it, but I've never answered it in the way that that I need to answer it. I've never given my life to that answer. Then I'm gonna ask Randy, if he would come down here at this altar, if you would like to have a pastor pray with you, Randy, you'll be right down here. But these other two altars, but maybe today as we sing, you would hear the question that Jesus asked Peter and asked his disciples and asks every single one of us, who do you say that I am? And are we willing, are you willing to say you're the Christ, the son of the living God, And Lord, I want to give everything I have, my life, to that answer. Oh, I want to get behind you. I want to follow you where you are leading me. Lord, guide my steps, guide me. Some of us might just need to find a place to pray. Say, Lord, here it is. Here's my answer. Here's my life. And as we sing, I would just invite you, if you want to find a place at one of these altars, you can come there to have an opportunity between you and God. Say, Lord, here it is. Let us stand as we sing.